This evening we want to look at verses 17 and 18. And I'm suggesting the thematic sequence, paranesis, substitution, and imputation. And I will enlarge upon those terms as we go on. But treating them in sections, uh, beginning with paranesis, let's ask the question whether, in fact, we have a new rhetorical or literary unit here in these two verses. And as you look at those two verses in your English version, do you have any suggestions as to whether it may be its own unit uh, or whether it not, may not be its own unit, or <clears throat> is there anything you see there that would suggest to you that these two verses are a unit in and of themselves? Randy? The word so would incline me to think that it's not. The word so, is that the beginning word in verse 17 in your translation? Right. Okay, so that would indicate what to you? That it's connecting from the previous. So you're saying it belongs to the previous section. It's not a distinct unit in its own. Okay. Perhaps, says Randy, it belongs to what precedes. I don't mean that that these sections are unrelated, but is this distinct in its own way? Uh, Bob, you were looking promising there, or you, 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 okay. (laughs) There was a look of unknowing. (laughs) Anybody have uh, any observations as they look at the English translation? Well, in your English translations, uh, do any of you have the if in verse 17 at the beginning or towards the beginning, and then in verse 18, another if? Several of you do. Okay. All right. That is an accurate translation uh, of that word in Greek. So it's actually... Uh, if, then, or but if in the New American Standard, and the New American Standard actually should be more accurately translated in 17, if, therefore, and the therefore should be placed first, but I will make a comment on that in a moment. My point here is that you have a a symmetry of the if-then pattern. Now, the then is not expressed in either verse except the mistranslation in the New American Standard in verse 17. The, The pattern goes if, blah, 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 then accept him. Verse 18, if, blah, 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 then charge that. So it's an if then sequence with the subsequent then in each instant being understood. Now, I'll elaborate upon that in a moment in terms of the Greek grammar. But that is one clue to the fact that these two verses are a parallel or symmetrical unit in their own right. So that's one clue that we've got a new unit new rhetorical unit. The other clue is the mood of the verbs. In verse 17, the word accept, and in verse 18, the word charge is in a particular mood. And we'll ask our New Testament prof what that mood may be. You're, you're, you're trying to get... Oh, okay. <laughs> Can you guess? <laughs> okay. You're supposed to pay attention in class, Professor. Oh. Okay. Randy? I'll jump in with a guess. Subjunctive. No, they're not subjunctives. 
Pete, you want to make a guess? You're the Greek examiner for the Presbytery. No, I didn't bring my Greek, Greek He Bible. didn't bring his Greek Bible. Can you guess even from the English? Yeah. Art, you had your hand up? Yes, imperatives. Actually, we've talked about this before when we did the broad structural outline. That's what that word paranesis means. It refers to the use of the imperative or the mandates in distinction from the use of the indicative. So here in verse 17 is the first imperative in this entire epistle. And in verse 18, the second imperative in this entire epistle. So this two-verse unit has the first occurrence of the imperative mood in Paul's letter here. The word accept and the word charge, I'm using New American Standard Translation, are in the imperative mood. So we have a shift in mood. We have a shift from the indicative, which we have been reading since verse 8. We have a shift from the indicative mood in the Greek to the imperative mood. And that suggests a shift in rhetoric. A shift from his pleading entreaties, I appeal to you, I appeal to you. Notice verses 8 and verse 10. He does not appeal now. He is not plaintive now. He is commanding. He is mandating. And as we observe this, as we observe his use of the imperative here, his use of the mood for commanding, making mandates, we notice what he does not command. We notice what he does not mandate. He does not mandate emancipation of Onesimus the slave. He does not command manumission of Onesimus the slave. He does not command or mandate abolition of the master-slave relation. It's interesting that the apostle does not use the imperative to undo the institution. Now, that doesn't mean that he's a defender of it. He's just simply not addressing that issue here in this epistle. The shift of mood to the imperative does do something, but it also doesn't do something. And therefore, those commentators who believe that these two verses are Paul's emancipation declaration for slavery in the Roman Empire are reading into the text what they want to be there, but not what is there. What is there is not a declaration of emancipation or abolition. Now, we touched on this in part last week. Nonetheless, we stick to what the text says, and we work from there. That doesn't mean that slavery is intended to be perpetual ad infinitum, but we'll deal with that in a a moment as well. All right, so the change in mood, as well as the if-then clause, set this unit apart. You'll notice that this is the first directive in this epistle. I direct you to accept him. I direct you to charge what he owes to me. In every other part leading up to this uh, 17th and 18th verse, the apostle has been pleading. He has been appealing. He has been urging, but he has not been mandating. Now we have a directive. So that binds these two verses together, unlike any other part of the letter. Now, the fourth element which uh, sets these two verses apart is what I alluded to when I was talking about the sequence of the therefore or if in verse 17 and the but or if in verse 18. This is the first consistent use of the post-positive particle in this Greek text. Now, if that sounds abstract, I'll try to make it a little clearer. 
in the Greek of verse 17. The word that is translated more properly, therefore, should be tra- is in the second place in the Greek text, <clears throat> and the if is in the first place. But the therefore takes precedence <clears throat> in translation in English. It's called the use of the post-positive. So the therefore being in the second place in verse 17, <clears throat> after the if <clears throat> in the first place in verse 17 in the Greek text, should be, by the grammatical rule of post-positive, translated first. And it should therefore read in English translation, therefore if. Now that same pattern is true in verse 18. Only this time we have the if first in verse 18, followed by the adversative conjunction but. That is also a post-positive construction. The but should be translated first again. But if, or rather if, either translation would be accurate. Now, this is the only place in this epistle where the apostle uses a sequential post-positive construction. Well, Denison, back there in verse 8, he used the word therefore. If you look back at your English, therefore is the first word in the ver- in the eighth verse but in the greek text that therefore is not post positive it stands at the beginning of the greek text therefore here in verses 17 and 18 the apostle was doing something grammatically peculiar unique and indicative it's indicative of the emphasis he is placing upon this protasis Apotasis construction, if, then, if, then. Now, I'll elaborate on that protasis, apotasis also in a minute. So, <clears throat> now, I admit that there are technical grammatical points here involved in this discussion. But nonetheless, you catch the sequence even in your English translation if your English translation follows the proper grammatical order. The proper grammatical order in verse verse 17 should be, therefore, if. And the proper grammatical order in verse 18 should be, but or rather, if. And it is because of the way the Greek is ordered. The Greek is laid out. All right, so this is another indication that Paul is doing something here in duplicate at the beginning of each of these verses that is indicative of a rhetorical shift. He is creating an additional rhetorical unit. And he's doing so because he has really come to the climax of his case. Everything from verse 1 up to verse 16 has been building up to this two-verse sequence. Everything in which he is using the indicative mood to plead and, and so, uh, and so called, so called appeal to Philemon is now stopped and we have the transition to the imperative directive. He's come to the point where he's now making a direct mandate and laying that mandate upon Philemon. He's been building to it. Now, he comes to it, and he does it in duplicate. He does it in a parallel two-verse rhetorical unit. Now, if you stand back from that for a moment, dear friends, you realize that you're working with a rhetorical master. The Apostle Paul is no literary dummy. He is a craftsman. He has done this plaintively, patiently, building to this point, and now he's ready for the climactic imperative. And he's done it in this gentle, this tender, this emotive style. Brilliant rhetorical style. Brilliant beyond even the style of the pagan rhetoricians. This is remarkable stuff because he's beyond them in terms of his own Christ-centered approach. Do not isolate Christ from this unit even though his name is not mentioned here. And we will make that clear as we go on this evening. 
But there are a number of reasons for the method to my madness and only considering two verses tonight. And there are four explanations for my madness before you. Any questions? Have I lost you? I hope not. All right. Now, let's ask a question about the structure. I've already alluded to this pattern. You see it on your outline, the symmetrical protasis and apodosis lines. Protasis, the if, apodosis, the then, that follows the if. Again, this is a technical grammatical term, protasis, apodosis in Greek grammar, and it is the way that we that they arrange a potentially conditional clause. If XYZ, then ABC. So this sequence here is symmetrical. It appears in both 17 and verse 18. So there is a duplicate protasis, apodosis structure in these two verses, and it does not appear anywhere else in the epistle. Second, if you remember way back to the fourth handout in this series, we had the detailed structure of the entire letter. And in that handout, we noted that verses 17 and 18 have a chiastic pattern of pronouns. And I've reprinted that section of that outline here uh, in your outline for tonight so that you can see the chiastic pattern of this protasis apodosis duplicate paradigm. You'll notice the use of me, you, and him. Personal pronouns that refer to me, who is the Apostle Paul, you, who is the master Philemon, and him, who is the slave Onesimus. Now, this chiasm includes, as I just identified, the three protagonists in this literary and epistolary drama. The relationship, you will notice, amongst these three protagonists pivots upon the second me. The hinge point of this chiastic pronomial pattern is the apostle himself. This chiasm swings upon the apostle Paul. This chiasm pivots upon the apostle Paul. This chiasm hinges on the Apostle Paul. And this chiasm is a mirror paradigm. The protagonists are mirrored in this chiasm. In fact, that's the uh, custom, that's the pattern of a chiastic device. You'll notice that the first me in verse 17 is mirrored in the last me in verse 18. The second you in verse 17 is mirrored in the next to the last you in verse 18. And the third him is mirrored in the third to the last he in verse 18. So there is a mirror reflection of the protagonists. Once again, a mirror reflection around the pivot point, around the central hinge around the Apostle Paul. So what's the point here? What's the Apostle doing with this chiastic style in the arrangement of these pronouns or an arrangement of these pronouns which refer to the protagonists in this drama? Well, Paul is blank, blank as... Onesimus is blank, blank, as Philemon is blank, blank. In other words, the mirror of the protagonists is also a mirror 
of something in which they are all mirrored together. Do you have a suggestion as to what that might be? Or who that might be? If they are reciprocally mirrored here in themselves, so to speak, they're a mirror of themselves. Is there anything other? Randy? There's only one person up there with a mirror. <laughs> what was his favorite phrase even in this epistle? In Christ. In Christ. So, this mirror of the protagonists in this chiasm, verses 17 and 18, is also a reflection of that in which they are mirrored. If they pivot in Paul, and Paul is in Christ, then they are in Christ. If Paul is mirrored in Christ Jesus, Onesimus is mirrored in Christ Jesus, Philemon is mirrored in Christ Jesus, and they are mirrored in one another. Therefore, the integrity, or that is the wholeness of this chiasm in 17 and 18, is to underscore what is by implication, though not by explication, present in these two verses. The name Christ Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ is not in these two verses, but it has been sprinkled throughout this epistle so that you cannot read these two verses and those who are described in this without reading these two verses and those who are described in it in Christ Jesus the Lord. That's my point. The chiasm here contains within itself the mirror of the ultimate reflection, which is the reflection of each of these characters in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now, verse 17 as substitution. I am going to suggest this evening that verse 17 contains a substitution motif. What does it mean? What does it mean to substitute? What would you say? There's something instead of. Instead of. I like that. Instead of. Good. Any other phrase to define substitute? In place of. In place of. Very good. Those are the two most common phrases that we would identify as indicating substitution. All right, now, do you have one word which is a synonym for substitution that means what those two phrases mean as well? Is there one word that says in the place of or in the stead of? One word synonym for substitute or substitution. That, of course, is the word that goes in the blank before mimesis. A surrogate? That just came into my head. Let's put it out of your head. No, it's not that it's out of order, but it's not the word I'm looking for. Yeah, it doesn't seem quite right, but that's all I can Ah. But you should think Christianly about substitution. And when you think Christianly, do you think Episcopalianly about substitution? You don't. <laughs> it is, but it is a word which you are probably familiar with in another sense from your Episcopalian background. Okay? Begins with the letter V. V is in Victor. But a name for your cleric or former cleric. Victor. The Victor. That's what I was thinking, but I'm thinking. There, there, get, what, well, you just have trouble getting it out tonight. That's fine. Okay, so you think of the vicar. What's the vicar? And what word do we get from vicar? Or what word do we use with vicar? Which is like vicar, but expands on vicar. Vicarious. Vicarious, yes. You see, that's the word I want. Because the vicar is a substitute. <clears throat> He's a priestly substitute in the Episcopalian order. <clears throat> and the word vicarious, of course, is used in what? Christian doctrine. 
Yes, the atonement. What is the vicarious atonement? Terry, tell me about the vicarious atonement. Well, what's vicarious mean? It's a synonym for substitute. So what's substitutionary atonement? For Terry, yes, exactly. Christ died for me. <clears throat> Christ died in my place. He is a vicarious savior. His atonement was a vicarious or substitutionary atonement. <clears throat> All right. So <clears throat> that's the word I was driving at with this substitution terminology, <clears throat> namely vicarious, which then causes us to think of the vicarious atonement of Christ that's not directly in view in this place, but nonetheless, it does indicate a vicarious person. Even as the cross of Christ demonstrates a vicarious person, so this verse I am suggesting is demonstrative of a vicarious person. That is, one who takes the place of another. Randy? Can you explain to me that the vicarious Episcopalian priest, and I'm missing the point there. I don't, he's a substitute in what sense? He's a substitute for the congregation before God. Okay. Correct? Yes, he takes the place of the congregation. We don't have such a thing. We do not. Okay. Yes, <clears throat> we call them ministers or teaching elders, or pastors, or reverence. Some of those terms also can be used in Episcopalian churches, but they generally call them priests or vicar. They have titles of an Episcopal order because the Episcopal church is of a high church order. So the priest has, has more, not power, but more... He has a higher standing role right. in the community. Right. I think I represented that accurately. Okay. Well, we're not <clears throat> we're not going down the rabbit trail anymore. Of, but but you get the idea. We're going to go back to the vicarious atonement. We're going to talk about a vicarious person <clears throat> and we want to think about what that means with respect to this particular passage. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> one writer on this epistle has used a very vivid expression of this substitutionary or vicarious element. You'll notice that that's really what the apostle is saying in verse 17. Accept him as you would me. Him for me. Me for him. That's a vicarious or substitutionary declaration on Paul's part. And this writer to whom I'm alluding, as I said, has a vivid expression for this pattern. He says, Paul, quote, stays or steps in front of the slave, unquote. Paul steps in front of the slave Onesimus as the substitute for him. That's very very vivid. You see the picture, don't you? You do see the picture with Paul stepping in front of Onesimus so that when Philemon looks at Onesimus, he doesn't see Onesimus per se. He sees Paul substituting for him. Or more poignantly, because he's in Christ, when he looks at Onesimus, he sees Christ stepping in front of the slave. And he sees Christ as the vicar, Christ as the substitute for Onesimus, the slave. The poignancy, then, of what the apostle is doing here is quite dramatic. He is pulling himself down into the paradigm of Christ's own substitutionary and vicarious work. No, he's not attempting to blur the distinction between himself and his Savior. But he's being drawn into the very drama of that substitutionary role. Paul 
steps in front. Like Christ steps in front for our sake. Takes his place in our stead. Stands on our behalf. So that when God the Father looks out upon us, who does he see but the substitute who is his only begotten and dearly beloved son? And in seeing his son, he sees the one in whom his soul delights. So that in seeing his son and the one who is covered by his son, he can see his delight in us as well. Paul is approaching that drama here with this language. But he's not only using this substitutionary or vicarious imagery. He is also using mimetic imagery. There is a mimetic motif or the mimesis theme here. What does mimesis mean? Well, English word... Imitation, English word mime, if you've ever seen a mime, comes from this word, this Greek word mimesis. A mime imitates, a mime characterizes, a mime even stereotypes. But the point is, the mime assumes the identity of the one he is miming. He participates by imitation in the identity of that one he is attempting to reflect. Mimesis, then, is a reflection device. It's a mirror device. It's a mirror reflection, underscoring common identification or joint participation. The mime is commonly identified, jointly participating in what identifies you as he tries to imitate your actions, your behavior, etc. Paul and Onesimus and Philemon share a mirror common identification. They share a joint participation and reflection. They have a mimetic dimension, mimetic dimension to them. And what is that mirror reflection? What is that mirror image? What is that joint identification and mirror reflection? It is Christ. It is Christ himself. So, even as Paul here uses the language of substitution, taking the place of Onesimus, even as Christ took his place and Onesimus's place and Philemon's place. So he adds to that a mirror reflection. In looking at me, you're looking at him. And in looking at me and in looking at him, and even in looking at yourself, Philemon, you're also seeing a reflection of the substitute, a reflection of the vicarious one, a reflection of the Christ in whose image you have been remade by the grace of regeneration. This child of mine who was begotten in my bonds, this son of mine who was regenerated in the prison bonds of my chains, this son, this child, he has been remade in the image of Christ Jesus as you were remade in the image of Christ Jesus, as I was remade in the image of Christ Jesus on the road to Damascus, as we three mirror that Lord Jesus Christ who substituted for us and who mirrored 
us in himself. Deigning to take our reflection into his own. So this 17th verse carries with it a depth, not only of the characterization of the situation between Philemon, Onesimus, and the Apostle Paul. It draws Christ into the drama of that situation. So they are reflecting something that is unique to the Christian identity, unique to the Christian doctrine of vicarious substitution, unique to being in Christ. And that uniqueness is the death knell to chattel slavery. That uniqueness is what puts the end, as it has historically put the end in Christian circles, to slavery and abject bondage. It is that which will abolish the institution. It is that which will cause the institution in the community of the gospel of those who understand what it is to be in Christ. It is that which will take away stealing stealing of people, subjecting them to chains and bondage, rape and and degradation. That is what will destroy it. That is what will eradicate it. That is what will abolish it. But as the history of the world, even in 2015 testimony, testifies, nothing else will do it. Not even resolutions in the Senate of the United States Congress. They won't do it. Not even United Nations declarations. They won't do it. The only thing that will do it is regeneration in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that institution will crumble of its own weight. So, the basis of Paul's imagery here in this 17th verse, the basis of the vicarious and mimetic imagery is Christ Jesus, our substitute, our vicarious substitute. The basis and foundation of Paul's imagery is Christ Jesus, our mirror, the one in whom we are reflected and the one whom we are to reflect, the one in whom we participate and the one who identifies with us. Paul, in verse 17, proposes to take the place of Onesimus to be the vicarious substitute for the slave. And Paul, in verse 17, proposes to be the mirror reflection of Onesimus. Onesimus imaged in Paul. Accept him as you would me. And we'll take our break. Turning our attention now to verse 18, and you'll notice once again my uh, headers here, imputation. I'm suggesting that verse 18 uh, has the sense of imputation. And I'm going to make that case on the basis of the Greek word for charge, charged at my account in the New American Standard. The Greek word is eloga here. It is the form of the verb elogeo in the Greek. And I'm going to use what's called the category of semantic word domains to argue that this word has the implication of imputation. 
<clears throat> now, <clears throat> semantic word domain is a large category of linguistic analysis, and it has been brought to bear upon Greek and Hebrew vocabulary, and what it means quite simply is that there are families of words that come from the same domain, that is, they have the same implications or nuance. So the word charge here could also be translated reckon or credit, and I'm going to make the argument that it can also mean impute, because elogeo is very close to the Greek word for impute, which is used in the New Testament, logizomai. Elogeo logizomai. They're a part of the same family of semantic word domain. All right, now, the technical vocabulary aside, this, this word here resonates with what we mean by impute. Now, in addition, this word, as some scholars have pointed out, has commercial overtones. Now, that would make sense to you as you see Paul saying, charge it to my account. In other words, it's the language of the marketplace. Put it on my tab. Put it to my account. In our more modern parlance, debit my account. Okay? As if the the apostle had a debit card or something like that. So if that suggestion is accurate, in other words, if this language does in fact... uh, carry with it the domain of the marketplace, the the domain of economic transfer. If, in fact, that is accurate, then it could be that Onesimus' offense was actually theft. That is, the theft of some item of commercial value, either money or something else that was uh, sold or pawned or whatever the case may be. It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting allusion or it's an interesting comment on what might confirm Theodore of Cyrus, the church father of the fifth century, a part of whose commentary on Philemon I read to you and it is in that outline when we dealt with that section when he suggested that Philemon had stolen something. In other words, Theodore suggested 500 years after the fact that Onesimus was a thief. This very word here, if it carries the weight of that domain, namely the domain of the commercial marketplace, it may in fact confirm that Theodoret was right, whether he was deriving that instinct from this or from a tradition that that went all the way back to the time of Philemon, for you may note, you may recall that Theodore said in that epistle, his commentary, that the house of Philemon was still standing in Colossae. And that was uh, 400, 400 years, I shouldn't say 500 years, 400 years after the fact he's a 5th century father, but he lives in the 400s. <clears throat> At any rate, you get the point here. <clears throat> this term, <clears throat> aside from the fact that it may be a synonym for impute, which is the case I'm going to make, is also a term that could suggest a financial offense, a theft, or a a removal of something of value that had commercial uh, commercial value. All right. Now, Paul's imagery here in this 18th verse is... imputational, and that's the word to fill in the blank, imputation or imputational on your outline. <clears throat> Paul's imagery is imputational plus mimesis again. Here's this mimesis thing that Denison likes to talk about. Yes, it's here, and I'll try to make a case for that. <clears throat> Keep in mind that my suggestions on the imagery here are my own suggestions. <clears throat> They are not dogmatic conclusions. It is what I believe is the dramatic uh, character of the, the, the text. It's the dramatic character of the situation. It's the dramatic character of the relationship, which includes the relationship of Christ with the three protagonists in this epistle. 
But nonetheless, this is my own suggestion. <clears throat> it is not the suggestion of the commentators or any other scholars. It doesn't make me right. I'm not, I'm not claiming that. I'm just simply saying this is the way I see the imagery of the text based upon the vocabulary and the structure that's here. All right, so you <clears throat> take it or leave it. It's, it's there for what it's worth. <clears throat> All right, so... If Paul's language is, as I am suggesting, it is imputational and mimetic language. He puts his debt, that is the debt of Onesimus, he puts his debt, if he owes Philemon anything, he puts his debt to his account, he charges his wrong to his own account, so he imputes that obligation, that debt, that deficiency, he imputes that to his own account, and he does that mimetically. Now, the mimetic motif here is reflection by way of identification, reflection by way of joint reckoning. That is, Paul and Onesimus together mirrored in the debt owed to Philemon. If he's going to lay that debt of Onesimus to his own account, then he is assuming the debt. He is mirroring the debt of Onesimus in himself and charging it or imputing it to his own account. Randy, you had your hand up. What's that word you use? Numetic, mimetic, what it's spelled? It's mimesis. It's on the outline. Mimetic. Yes, mimetic. I got you. Okay. It comes from mimesis. Fine. All right, now, what is the basis then? What is the foundation then for Paul's imagery, both imputational and mimetic? If I am correct in my suggestion, what is the foundation for this imagery? It is Christ Jesus, is it not? Surely it is Christ Jesus. It is the mirror identification in Christ which jointly charges Paul and Onesimus and Philemon with the account of their Savior. They are charged with the account of their Savior. And what is it in Christ's account? What is it in Christ's account which he charges to them, which he imputes to them? Christ Jesus charges or imputes the benefit of his life. And what life benefit is it that is charged to the account of believers from Christ's account book? It is his righteous life. It is his righteous life which is imputed, charged, reckoned to their account. And what is the benefit of his death? What is the benefit of his death which is imputed, charged, reckoned to their account? It is the forgiveness of their sin. It is the remission of their debt, their debt of penalty and eternal punishment. So, Christ's imputed righteousness covers the deficit of Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon's unrighteousness. They and we are deficient in righteousness. Christ covers their and our deficiency by charging his Righteousness to our account. In Christ, we have a plus righteousness on our side of the ledger, not a minus righteousness on our side of the side of the letter. Apart from Christ, we have a minus sign on the side side of the lever which says righteousness. In Christ, we have a plus sign on the side of the register, which says righteousness because Christ plus cancels out our minus. His sufficiency cancels our deficiency. 
His righteousness imputed cancels our unrighteousness. This imputational language, if it be here in verse 18, as I am arguing, this imputational language is anchored, it is based, it is founded in the imputation of Christ's righteousness. The act of imputing something to Christ and Christ imputing something to the one from whom he received that. But more than that, in his righteousness, Christ sufficiently covers our righteous deficit because his righteousness as lived out in history as lived out in 33 years of time and space, his righteousness as lived out upon the earth was perfectly righteous, unspottedly righteous, blamelessly righteous. Why is that important to a sinner? Why is that important to you? Ask Martin Luther. Ask any person who has realized that in himself, in his naked self before God's almighty, all-seeing, all-righteous eye, he has no righteousness. He is damnably unrighteous. Ask Martin Luther. Why isn't it as important to you as it was to him? Why do you pretend that when you're asked what is justification and a benefit to you, you can't say the righteousness of Christ? Why? Why does it make no impression upon you when Luther sweat and wept and virtually bleeded for it? What are you without the righteousness of Christ? What is any sinner without the righteousness of Christ? You are condemned as unrighteous. That's what you are. Then why isn't the righteousness of Christ precious to you, even as the life of Christ is precious to you? Oh, I like his death on the cross. All these symbols. Where's the symbol of his righteous life? Why don't we have one of those hanging up there? It's as equally important. Isn't it? Or will you go into eternity unrighteous? You will never enter that door in a state of unrighteousness. Where then will I get it? Ask Martin Luther the question that haunted him. Where will I get the righteousness to go through the door of God's glorious, all-righteous, eternal heaven? Where will I get it? From the mass. Nonsense. From the priest. Blasphemy. From the sacraments. No. From cleaning the latrines. No. From my works. No. Zero, zero, zero. Strike out consistently. And Luther is still laying on his face in front of the altar, trying to be righteous. And then he remembers the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he remembers 33 odd plus years of perfect righteousness in history. Why isn't the history of Christ's perfect righteousness as important to you as that death? Why? Luther found it the most important thing. Because it was the source of the righteousness which he needed to stand righteous before Almighty God. You will not be saved without the life of Jesus. No salvation for you without the life of Jesus. You should drop down on your knees and thank God for the life of Jesus Christ. 
because that is the righteous life which you need. And he lovingly, graciously, mercifully, tenderly, freely imputes it to you. All my 33 plus odd years of righteousness, I credit to your account. I charge it to your side of the ledger. I give you the benefit of my life righteousness. Isn't that worth saying praise God? Isn't that worth bending on your knees and saying thank you, Lord Jesus? Isn't that enough to have you remember that I need the life of Christ for my salvation? I am a Christian because I need the righteous life of the righteous Christ for my justification. The imputation, the charge, the reckoning of the life of Jesus to your life and my life and Martin Luther's life and every other sinner's life who has realized that without a righteous life, I go to hell. And I'm on my way to hell until Jesus imputes, charge, reckons, places to my account his righteous life, not not my miserably unrighteous life. So we understand the benefit of the imputation of the life of Jesus. And yet that symbol does tell us something that is also important. It tells us about the imputation of the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, the imputation of the penalty that Christ bore. Yes, we need the righteous life of Christ to cover our unrighteousness. We need the bloody death of Christ to take care of our penalty, to cover over the damn-worthy penalty that we deserve. Well, what is that damn worthy penalty? Suffering. Death itself. And descent into hell. That is what we deserve. That is the penalty that our sin has earned. The wages of sin is death with all the attendant consequences of the penalty that goes to make up that death. Guilt. Damnation. And eternal suffering. You can't pay that price. You couldn't pay it in an eternity in hell. You couldn't pay off that price. You would never come out until you paid the uttermost farthing, as Jesus says. But Jesus goes to that gibbet for the sake of imputing to you what he himself endures on your behalf. He imputes to you as he imputes to himself the suffering you deserve. He imputes to you, as he imputes to himself, the death that you deserve. He imputes to you, as he imputes to himself, the hell that you deserve. He takes it in your place. So you need the death of Christ imputed to you. You need the cross of Christ imputed to you, as you need the life of Christ. You need the 33-year life, and you need the momentary or Calvary six-hour death of Christ imputed to you. You need the historical work of the historical Christ imputed to you. Because if it's not worked out in history, if it's not performed in history, if it's not finished in history, it's never finished. Because you're a historical person. You live in history. Your sins and your guilt and your damn worthy estate are historical. You have to have an historical compensation, an historical imputation, an historical salvation. If he's not the Savior... If he's not the historical redeemer, if he didn't in history perform what you in history need to perform, but you can't because it's impossible to you, if not, then nothing. We have our men most miserable. So in this language of imputation, Paul draws in the mimesis or the imitation of Christ. That is the participation in his life. Reckon that to my account. 
Paul says, because Christ reckoned his life of righteousness to my account. Reckon that to my account, says Paul, because Christ reckoned his death and the benefit of his death on the cross to my account. My suffering he took in his in my place. My death he took in my place. My hell he took in my place. All that he did that I might ask you, Philemon, to impute Onesimus's unrighteousness to my account. Impute Onesimus's desert for death and punishment to my account. If he owes you anything, minus or plus, put it to my account. Even as Christ put all my minuses and my pluses to his own account. The wonderful power of the apostles' rhetoric here is to draw Philemon into the majesty of the imputational as well as the vicarious work, as well as the mimetic work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philemon, I am writing to you that you may understand What Christ has done for you, has done for me, has done for this slave. And in having you understand that, I am asking you to be a mirror of Christ. A mirror in imputation, a mirror in substitution, a mirror in mimetic imitation and participation. Philemon, I am drawing you into the depth of the riches of the drama of the life and death of the Lord Jesus, even as Onesimus has been drawn into that drama, I have been drawn into that drama, and, Lord willing, the church that meets in your house has been drawn into that drama. These images here are alive and vivid, not only with the living vividness of this scene and the drama in Colossae and in Rome, but these images here are alive with the vividness of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, of course, is where the climax of this epistle brings us. Though his name is not mentioned in these two verses, he is everywhere present in all of the words of these two verses because the apostle cannot speak this way unless he has first been brought into that relationship with Jesus Christ and made a new man in Christ Jesus. Now, Philemon, I testify to you that Onesimus has been made a new man in Christ Jesus as I am. And I know, Philemon, that you too have been made a new man in Christ Jesus. Receive him as you receive me, as you receive Christ. Charge to him as you would charge to me, as you, have been, as you would charge your own debt to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Philemon, Philemon, I believe, received Onesimus in that vicarious, imputational, and mimetic spirit because we have this letter and I don't think we would have this letter had there not been a happy ending to the apostles pleas and mandates let's pray we do give you thanks O Lord for the depth of the riches in Christ Jesus, our Savior, and for the wonderful redemptive drama here, which is also a wonderfully mimetic drama, which speaks to us of the mirror in which we have been reflected, the righteous life of Christ, the forgiving death of Christ, and we would not leave out the wonderful, victorious resurrection of Christ. All of these treasures and graces 
manifestly <clears throat> enriched and super abundantly drawn to us and we to them. Thank you for this story. Thank you for this slave and this master and this wonderful apostle and all those who are named in this letter. Thank you, Lord, that they too, with the exception of Demas, apparently drawn in to that wonderful in Christ drama. Let it be our own, even as we are encouraged in our own weakness, in our own understanding. Let it be our own. Let our mirror be the mirror of N. Christo. We ask it in the name of the mirror himself, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.